Hey, good morning, church. Let's stand together, can we? Let's just offer our praise to our Father in heaven this morning. Sing it out. When all I see is the battle, you see my victory. That's our God, amen.
If you're joining us online, be sure to tell us where you're watching from. It's good to see you as well today. My name is Tiffany. I serve here at Before Church, and I have one exciting announcement today for our men, our men in the room. Woo! <laughs> I heard one cheer. <laughs> so good. On June 16th, we are having our men's kickoff event. It's going to be amazing. There's going to be competition, food, people. It's so good. We're also gonna hear from Pastor Brad and Pastor Keith as they just kind of share their friendship, what their leadership styles are like, how they have tough and honest conversations. It's gonna be good. So June 16th at 7 p.m. Be sure to RSVP just so we kind of know how many numbers to plan for. This weekend, I've been thinking a lot about community and just how this space that we come to is a place where community and life really happen. And that's everything from sharing our prayer requests, sharing the things that we're mourning about, and also celebrating. So I have some celebration news to share. Um, I used to serve in kids pretty regularly, and the team that I served on shared that their brother-in-law had been fighting cancer over the last year. And so we've been praying, praying for his healing, but we've also been praying for his heart because he didn't know Jesus. And so they kind of had conversations and, you know, he just wasn't quite there yet. And so this couple weeks ago, we get an email from them and they said, you know, it's not looking good. So we're going to fly out. So they flew out to just spend some time with him. And as they spent some time with him, they're like, can we talk to you about Jesus? And he's like, okay, yeah, we, let's talk about Jesus. And so as they just shared the heart of Jesus and Jesus for him and his life and everything, he said, yeah, I'd like to know that Jesus. How amazing is that? So good. The presence of Jesus transforms. We don't know what his story is going to be like over the next couple days or weeks, but we do know where he's going. We know that he has a promised eternity in the presence of Jesus. So let's, in celebration, praise the God who is victorious. Praise the God who still is the champion, regardless of circumstances, and celebrate together.
authority Jesus has given me by keeping our eyes on Jesus, the champion who initiates and perfects our faith. Because of joy, because of the joy awaiting him, he endured the cross, disregarding its shame. Now he sits in the place of honor beside God's throne. Jesus, we worship you in this place. God, we believe that you are the champion of every battle I don't know where we're coming from in this room. I don't know if you're in a battle right now, but I know that we've all been through battles and there's more battles to come. And I feel like we need to hear as a church, as a community that God, that Jesus has come to be champion over those battles, to win it for us on our behalf. So as we sing this song, declaring Jesus as champion, Let's do it with confidence that he's already won. He's already won. It may not look, the battle may not look like what we expected. The outcome may not be what we expected, but man, he won and he will continue to win. So we as a church, we're just gonna continue to press into his presence, even when it's hard, even when we're in the thick of it. We're gonna press into his presence and we're gonna believe him as champion when he says he is. Amen. So we're gonna sing this out. We're gonna sing this out, this chorus one more time and sing it with your hands lifted high to a God who loves you and is there in the thick of it with you. Let's sing. You are my champion. 
on our own power, not on our own accomplishments. We stand on what you have done. You, a loving God, have done everything you have done to give us victory over death, over the grave, over sin, over addiction. God, you have done it. So we thank you, Jesus, that in you we need not fear. In you we need not be saddened. God, in you we have confidence. So we thank you, Jesus, for all you are and all that you've done. And we love you and we praise you for, for who you are. In your name we pray. Amen. Amen. Yeah. Thank you, worship team. Thank you, Jonesy. All right. Good morning. That's one way to start the day, huh? That's pretty good. I just want to start off by saying happy Memorial Day weekend. We want to stop and acknowledge the, the sacrifice of people who have given their lives uh, in the U.S. military. And we look forward to a day uh, in the new heavens and the new earth where death and pain and suffering will be no more. But until then, we say, we say thank you. Now, uh, yeah, absolutely. Wow, we're here. We are in our second to last week of the Leviticus series. Isn't that wild? We've been in Leviticus for a very long time, this series, God in Search of Us. And everything about Leviticus, everything about this series is about God seeking to be with us. That's the, the heart of the series. And, and this, this week, this, this part of the scripture starts out seemingly tough. Uh, we're going to be in Leviticus chapter 26. So if you want to turn there uh, while I'm uh, getting into this, you can. Last week, Brad got to talk about the first part of Leviticus 26, which is blessings for obedience. Good for him. This week, I get to talk about punishment for disobedience. <laughs> Yay. <laughs> Let, let's be honest. When it comes to how we interact with the world around us, with the people in our lives, one of the biggest, most difficult pills to swallow is the idea that God would punish people. We don't like talking about hell. Either that or we're far too confident about talking about hell and we talk about it too much. But here's the thing. Neither you or I are the judge of the living and the dead. We're not qualified to be that. That's not our job. And I feel a lot of peace when I remember that the judge of all souls is the one who died for his enemies. The one who died for the people who were killing him. I get a lot of peace from that. But there is evil in this world that needs to be dealt with, yeah? People who take guns with them on freeways, and when they have road rage, they shoot at random cars, killing six-year-old boys. There are enraged people who torch their homes and, and then go to their, their, their office space and kill innocent coworkers. There are missiles that are launched at civilian populations that, that kill children and break up families. There are people who kidnap and murder and steal and destroy. These things, hatred, deception, murder, abuse, these things have no place in the kingdom of God. They will have no place in the new heavens and the new earth, so they need to be dealt with. And a lot of us, we tend to think about God's wrath as God enjoying the torture of lost souls. But God's wrath is always associated in the scriptures with the protection of the good creation, of keeping evil out, preserving goodness. And some of us may think, well, I've never killed anyone, I've never kidnapped, I've never been a pimp, so I guess I'm off the hook. But no, no, we look back to the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 5 through 7, and Jesus teaches us that the horrible things that we witness in the world, that those sins are found in each and every one of our hearts, right? That the anger that murders the innocent is actually found in here. That the adultery that destroys families is actually found in here. So there is evil that needs to be dealt with, and the most despicable murderer also needs to be dealt with in each and every one of us. Now, I don't know about you, but when the new heavens and the new earth are reborn and Christ brings to fruition an era of peace for all people and the resurrection of the dead, I hope that sin is dealt with. I hope that evil is dealt with. I hope it has no place in my heart or in the new order of things. So we get to this tough passage in Leviticus chapter 26. So we'll start in, in verse 14. But if you will not listen to me and carry out all of my commands, and if you reject my decrees and abhor my laws and fail to carry out all of my commandments and so violate my covenant, then I will do this to you. I will bring on you sudden terror, wasting diseases and fever that will destroy your sight and sap your strength. You will plant your seed in vain because your enemies will eat it. 
I will set my face against you so that you will be defeated by your enemies. Those who hate you will rule over you, and you will flee even though there is no one pursuing you. If after all this you will not listen to me, I will punish you for your sins seven times over. I will break down your stubborn pride and make, make the sky above you like iron and the ground beneath you like bronze. Your strength will be spent in vain because your soil will not yield its crops, nor will the trees of your land yield their fruit. If you remain hostile toward me and refuse to listen to me, I will multiply your afflictions seven times over as your sins deserve. I will send wild animals against you and will rob you of your children, destroy your cattle, and make you so few in number that your roads will be deserted. All right, so there's a lot more of this kind of language. Jump down to verse 40. This is kind of an unexpected turn at the end of this chapter. But if they will confess their sins and the sins of their ancestors, their unfaithfulness and their hostility toward me, which made me hostile toward them so that I sent them into the land of their enemies... Then when their uncircumcised hearts are humbled and they pay for their sin, I will remember my covenant with Jacob and my covenant with Isaac and my covenant with Abraham. And I will remember the land. For the land will be deserted by them and will enjoy its Sabbath while it lies desolate without them. They will pay their sins because they rejected my law and abhorred my decrees. Yet, in spite of this, when they are in the land of their enemies, I will not reject them or abhor them so as to destroy them completely, breaking my covenant with them. I am the Lord their God. But for their sake, I will remember the covenant with their ancestors whom I brought out of Egypt in the sight of the nations to be their God. I am the Lord. Okay, so there's this theme in this chapter where we have a choice, yeah? We have a choice to either obey or to disobey. Now, um, in the old Near Eastern uh, traditions, covenants were common. And at the end of the covenant, there would often be these stipulations. Rewards for obedience and uh, 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 punishments for disobedience. For every blessing that, that, that is at the end of the covenant, there is a parallel curse that follows it. Um, and, and there are examples of this in this chapter. There's rain and fertility for obedience and famine and defeat for disobedience. There's peace in the land or there's drought and poor harvest and et cetera, et cetera. The Israelites are given the distinct choice and the agency to choose. So why does the scriptures, why does Leviticus paint this dichotomy of choice for us? Well, remember, we have to ask the question, what are the scriptures all about? Yeah, we've been learning from the very beginning that everything in Leviticus is pointing to a greater reality. So what is written and prescribed here represents a fuller future. The scriptures are all about God's plan to save the world, right? To reconcile all of creation to himself so that we can be his people and he can be our God. This is Sabbath rest, the Garden of Eden reclaimed, the union of heaven and earth, the creator and the creation walking and reigning together in an era of peace. This is what the whole story is about. So, so don't lose the plot. Leviticus is tough, but remember, everything we read in this book is a foretaste of a promised reality. Right, the tabernacle, the, the place of worship, this is a preview of the restored creation. Yeah, this is where heaven and earth are not separate, but overlap uh, and are unified. But like we've talked about before, the promise of heaven means freedom from death, means freedom from pain, means freedom from deformity. Right, we see in, the, in, in John's vision of, of, of the new heavens and the new earth in Revelation 21, that death, deformity, pain, tears, sadness of any kind has no place. So sin and evil need to be dealt with. Okay, so let's have a conversation then about life, about death, and about sin. If we go back to Genesis, everything always comes back to Genesis. <laughs> if we go back to Genesis, we have the tree of life, and then we have the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Or we have the tree of obedience, or the tree of do it my own way. Those are the trees that are in the garden. And God is the source of life. Life only comes through him, right? So when we choose God, we choose life. When we don't choose God, we choose death. Because God is the source of life and we cannot have life without its source, yeah? The absence of light is darkness, the absence of heat is cold, and the absence of life is death. So there's this passage in Psalm chapter 14 and it opens with this statement. The fool says in his heart, there is no God. Now, the fool who says in his heart there is no God, this concept is a very specific one. It might not mean exactly what we think it means at face value. This connotation is that there is a conscious moral decision, 
right? This is not someone who's having intellectual questions and perhaps arrives at a conclusion that there is no God. No, this is somebody who, even though they've met the living God, they live as if they haven't. They reject his existence anyway. This is the fool who says in his heart, there is no God. Remember who these Israelites are that Leviticus is being written to, right? These, these Israelites have just seen God do some wild things, right? They've seen God bring plagues on Egypt. They've seen him split the sea. They've seen him manifest pillars of fire and make water come out of rocks. These people have encountered God in mind-blowing ways. And yet, when things get difficult, following the manifest presence of God through the desert, they complain, and they want to go back to slavery. In fact, they assert that it'd be better if they did. And then Moses goes up on a mountain for a few weeks to receive some further instructions from this amazing God. And he comes back and they've built a golden calf and they're worshiping it. Three weeks. <laughs> they forgot what God did. Actually, no, they didn't forget what God did. They remembered, but they chose something else anyway. The fool who says in his heart, there is no God. See, we, we tend to judge the Hebrews pretty harshly, but humans have not changed very much, have we? We have the tree of life right in front of us, and we look at that tree, and then we see the tree of, but I want to do this, and we choose that tree anyway. We have an incredibly short memory, and we have incredibly stubborn resolve. Yeah? My, uh, my wife and I just celebrated seven years of marriage. Whoop, whoop. It's awesome. Yeah. Uh, and while we were on our anniversary trip, we were kind of like looking back at old photos of our marriage, and I, I want you to know something, guys. In my marriage... I have grown, I have become more patient, I have become more loving, I have grown in pant sizes. <laughs> I know what the tree of life is, right? Like, I know that I can eat a carrot. A carrot is good for me, they, they taste great, they have good texture, they're filling. I can enjoy a fresh, cold carrot, and it, apparently it'll even help me see better, it'll give me energy, pros all around. Or I can choose the tree of the knowledge of good and evil or the tree of, but I want that. And that tree perhaps is shaped like a donut. And it's a beautiful tree, it's sparkly, it's warm, it's glazed with sugar. Perhaps this particular tree has bacon on it. <laughs> Amen. It's, it's, gonna be, it's gonna be sinfully delightful with every single bite, but I know what comes next, right? I lose energy, my stomach hurts, I feel bloated, my back aches for some reason. <laughs> like, like I, I know how it goes, yeah? And even though I know that carrots lead to life and donuts lead to death, I choose donuts anyway. Because it's gotten easier and easier to choose, right? I choose that lesser desire, and that lesser desire informs my will, and th that will informs my actions, and my actions create habits, and my habits form neural pathways. And then if I wanna create a new habit, it's really hard to try to crave carrots again, yeah? It's hard. But, but our, our ability to choose the wrong tree is not just down to what's bad for us. We, we willfully do things to wrong other people, don't we? Even when we know how our selfish actions will harm someone else, we, we will choose the, the, the selfish option anyway. Humans have a tendency to know the truth, to see the tree of life and the tree of my way and still choose the tree of my way. And the more and more I choose that tree, the more and more I heap consequences on myself. The more and more my way I embrace, the more and more death I embrace. Am I alone in this? Do you guys, do you guys relate to this? The more I choose things my own way, the more death I heap on myself. Now, there are those of us who are on a journey, right? We're, we're seeking answers, we're seeking even maybe better questions, and I have no doubt Maybe I'm a little biased, but I have no doubt that if you continue to seek truth with integrity, that I think you will find it in Jesus. I really do. And there are those of us who have been brought up in other religions and other traditions who remain curious, who want to keep seeking answers and keep seeking questions. And I think some people even pursue Jesus before they even know that they are, before they even know his name. That's not what Psalm 14 is about. Psalm 14 is about the person who has encountered the living God and yet still wants something else. There was a, a Christian existential philosopher named Soren Kierkegaard. And he said, there are two ways to be fooled. One is to believe what is, or uh, sorry, one is to believe what isn't true. The other is to refuse to accept what is true. Now, seeking truth can be really scary. Can be honest for a second? Seeking truth can be really intimidating. When we look down the journey of facing truth, sometimes we're afraid of what the answer might be. A part of the, the wisdom literature in the Old Testament is the book of Ecclesiastes. And Ecclesiastes stares down the barrel 
of these potentially really terrifying questions. And it starts off with, everything is meaningless, right? It, it addresses the question head on. And when we as human beings wake up to this as thinking people, we have this existential crisis of like, why am I here? Why does this all matter? What does it all mean? We begin this journey down the mystery of creation and the goodness, uh, the origin of goodness. But there are those of us who are so terrified by the question that we'd rather not ask it. It's far easier to pretend like what I have is enough than face the reality that it might not be, right? That can be really intimidating. There's another atheist existential philosopher named Friedrich Nietzsche, and he wrote this. When you gaze into the abyss, the abyss also gazes into you. Now the abyss here, this is the idea that life is meaningless, and, and that reality feels sometimes far too overwhelming to even entertain. So the idea that when we wake up to these existential thoughts, the harsh reality of meaninglessness, that that reality stares back into us. So we get really, really good at ignoring the abyss, at ignoring those questions. But here's the thing. We don't need to be afraid of the abyss. We don't need to be afraid of that question. Because Ecclesiastes acknowledges the abyss apart from God. But in God, there is a wealth of meaning. There is a wealth of purpose in him. Jesus is not afraid of the abyss. Jesus defeated the abyss, defeated meaninglessness. So when we go our own way apart from God, we are left with an abyss. But Jesus offers us a way back to God where that abyss is silenced. And what Jesus offers did not, does not stop at an ethical debate or a philosophical epiphany, right? What he offers is a deep knowing of himself. Not of a concept, just of a concept, but of a person. A person whose name and very nature is love. Jesus is not afraid of your questions, right? He says, seek and you will find. Knock and the door will be opened to you. So when we step into this Christian journey... We discover that truth is not limited to an idea, that truth in its fullness is a person. And we, when we survey this person, when we survey the person of Christ and the power of the cross and the empty tomb, and we gaze into the eyes of this God, we gaze not into an abyss, but of a loving God who has done everything he has done to redeem creation and to be with us again. That's the truth of the scriptures. And we encounter this love, we come face to face with this good God, and then we turn and go our own way, we choose death. The price, the wages of stepping away from this giver of life is the absence of life. Without light, there is darkness. Without peace, there is chaos. Without love, there is hate. And without life, there is death. A pastor, a friend of mine, um, uh, reminded me recently that our deepest desire is not that people would live like Jesus, our deepest desire is that people would learn to live like Jesus because they know the living God. There's a difference. Jesus is not a philosophy. He's not an ideology. He's the truth. He's the way. He's the life. Right? But like we said, not all who see this God want this good God. There's this passage in, in the gospel according to John uh, where Jesus has raised Lazarus, Lazarus Lazarus, from the dead, right? And Lazarus is dead, there's no doubt. Like, he's been dead for like four days, his body's starting to smell, and Jesus raises him from the dead miraculously. Some people see this, and they believe. Others see this, and they go to the Pharisees. And again, it's not that they don't believe the resurrection happened, they saw it with their own eyes. It was black and white, it happened, it was right there. But they saw that, and they chose to reject him anyway because they wanted their own way. They didn't want things to change. This is like Pharaoh letting, letting the Hebrews go, right? God gives him so many chances to let my people go, repent, stop doing this. And he, he's, I don't want to give up my power. I don't want to give up my way. This is a human reality that we all face. In, in Matthew 19, uh, there's recorded the story of the rich young man who comes to Jesus and wants wisdom, right? And Jesus says, well, you have to give up everything. You have to sell everything you own and follow me. And the man went away sorrowful because he had a lot of possessions. He didn't choose to follow Jesus. He went away sorrowful because he didn't want to give up what he had. And this is where Jesus gives this amazing analogy of the camel and the needle, right? And he says it's actually easier for a camel to fit through the eye of a needle than it is for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. And the reason is because the more we feel like we have, the more we feel like we have a right to, the more like we feel like we can't give up, the more we feel we want to go our own way. Some people don't want to give up what we have 
even if it's for something better. C.S. Lewis, he wrote this work of fiction called The Great Divorce, and it's a, it's a fictional telling of, of the afterlife. And in this story, we learn that the only people who are unable to join the eternal heavenly reality of God are the people who are unwilling to give up their own way. And this story got me pondering on the scriptures, and I began to realize that the only people that aren't going to be with God for eternity are the people that don't want to be. Which, by the way, I think some of us, we need to calm down with our determining of where people are going when they die and where they end up. You know, I've been having conversations with people, and sometimes people will say, I'll, you know, I'll be talking about like a celebrity or something. And they'll be like, ah, well, too bad they're in hell. You don't know that. You are not the judge of the living and the dead. We're not qualified to do that. That's Jesus' job. And like we said at the beginning, Jesus is the, is the righteous judge, the merciful judge who died for the people who were killing him. He's full of mercy. Now, that's not to say that there are not consequences for choosing to walk away from God. Clearly, there are. When we behold goodness and then we walk away, we're using our agency to separate ourselves from the giver of life. That's what sin is. The result of sin is death, and all sin is choosing to walk away from the giver of life. But let's talk about this turnaround at the end of the chapter, yeah? This section that offers forgiveness and mercy even after disobedience. There's this... um, uh, uh, biblical scholar, his name's Samuel Ballantyne, and he says this, even when Israel languishes in exile, convinced that its sins have effectively canceled every conceivable divine incentive for mercy, God will not abandon the covenant that begins with an inviolable promise, I am the Lord your God, and ends with an equally inviolable promise, divine hope, you shall be my people. When the final word of chapter 26 is spoken, the gift of the statutes of ordinances and laws at Sinai should summon Israel to celebrate, not fear, God's promise not to be bound by his own principles of justice. I know it's a little wordy, but it's powerful. Again, these covenants in the Near Eastern cultures were common, but they did not include this turn. It's as if that God, at the end of all these warnings, he extends this completely unexpected and undeserved hand of mercy. And he says, if you walk away from me, this is the hell that you're going to bring down on yourself. But if you confess your sin, if you come home, I won't hold any of this against you. There may be consequences that you have to deal with, but I'll hold you anyway. But I'll bless you anyway. And God is saying that even through all of your disobedience and evil that's deserving of wrath and punishment, all you need to do is acknowledge where you've fallen short, and I will forgive you. You may invite the harsh reality of death to bear down on you, but I will bear it for you. Indeed, I will defeat it for you. Enter our living hope, Jesus. Remember the story. Everything God has done, he has done to redeem the world and to be with us again. It's all about his desire for us to be lovingly reconciled to him. So anything apart from his life is death, but death has been defeated. Death will be of the old order of things. Death and anything associated with death needs to be destroyed. It must be kept out. So that's why we're going to talk about hell. Now hell in the Greek is often translated Gehenna. Gehenna was the Valley of Hinnom. This was a location just outside the walls of Jerusalem where people would go and sacrifice children to a false god named Molech. This is also an area where they would burn refuse and they would burn garbage. This was a clear illustration. Jesus, by the way, uses this place 11 times when he says hell. He uses this word, Gehenna. There's this illustration here that anything that is not bound to life, anything that is associated with death must be kept out. Anything that's vile, offensive, evil, they do not belong inside the walls of the city. They have no place in the new creation. So everything that draws us away from life must not be allowed inside the gates to flourish. So let's look to Jesus. Remember, everything in Leviticus, everything points to uh, uh, God's plan to save the world. And it's because he loves us that he wants to be with us. So this call, this call, this challenge to obedience, I don't think is God just flexing his muscles, right? I don't think he's like Schwarzeneggering us. You puny, tiny humans. Get out of my chopper. (laughs) 
That was a risk. I'm glad you thought it was funny. <laughs> Some of you aren't laughing. You're like, don't make fun of Arnold. Um, I don't think that's what he's doing. He's not like flexing on us, right? Trying to assert his authority over us. I think that his holy jealousy for us is rooted in the fact that he deeply cares for us. In, in the New Testament, the apostle John, he refers to himself as the disciple whom Jesus loved. Which, by, by the way, I don't think was him bragging. I think that John, I, I had a mentor once who told me that, that humility is simply an accurate self-view. And I think that John was deeply, profoundly aware of the reality that he was loved by the creator. That he was loved by God. That's not arrogance, that's actually perfect humility. And, 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 and he was the one who even documented these famous words that a lot of us memorized before the age of seven, right? For God so loved the world. So this apostle, this, this one whom Jesus loved, John documents this conversation that Jesus has with the disciples that actually, when I, when I studied this, closely reflects this passage in Leviticus, this passage in John. It's found in John 15. I am the vine, you are the branches. If you remain in me and I in you, you will bear much fruit. Apart from me, you can do nothing. If you do not remain in me, you are like a branch that is thrown away and withers. Such branches are picked up and thrown into the fire and burned. If you remain in me and my words remain in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. This is to my Father's glory that you bear much fruit, showing yourselves to be my disciples. As the Father has loved me, so I have loved you. Now remain in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will remain in my love just as I have kept my Father's commandments and remain in his love. I have told you this so that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be complete. So why does God ask us to obey him? Because he wants to invite us into this love that he and the Father share and he wants us to have joy. He knows that apart from the branch, there is no life. Or apart from the vine, there is no life, that our branch will wither and die. He wants to call his friends. He wants to be with us, so he invites us into this love. He wants us to experience his joy, joy that is made complete. And maybe you've been in this place where you're just trying really, really hard not to break the rules so that you don't make God angry with you. But that's not the point. That's not what Leviticus 26 is actually about. God wants to be with you because he loves you. Honestly, what good parent simply wants their children to fear them and nothing else? I mean, don't we want our children not just to want to be with us because we can protect them or what we can provide for them? Don't we want them to love us because they love us? What if, what if we actually wanted to be with God not just because we know he can protect us or what he can benefit us with? What if we wanted God simply because he loves us? When we cling to Jesus... He takes care of sin, he takes care of death, and he prunes all that away so that we can experience a fullness of joy. Not the fear of a bitter tyrant, but the joy of a loving father. Would you stand with me? May you be men and women who are gripped by the love of God who find joy and life in obedience and mercy where we fall short. Amen. Have a good week, everyone. We'll see you later.